Well, please turn with me in our Gospels uh, this morning uh, to the Gospel according to Mark. And this morning we're turning to Mark chapter 11. For those who are joining us this morning, we have been working our way through uh, Mark's Gospel and we're coming to this uh, 11th chapter, and we've been looking in recent weeks at um, uh, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, and we're coming to the last section of this chapter where the authority of Jesus is challenged. But we're going to begin our reading back at verse 15 uh, to set the context. Mark chapter 11, and beginning at verse 15. This is speaking about uh, Jesus and the disciples. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. And when they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it one with another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid uh, of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. From a young age, uh, we learn to operate uh, within the realm of authority. We may not always think so, uh, but it's there. Uh, Maybe we're told to do something, or maybe you young people, you get told to do something. And sometimes you may even uh, respond to that instruction or that direction by saying, says who? Uh, we, we need to know oh, not only what we're being told to do, but where that message is coming from in order to make sense of whether or not it is something that we should listen to. 
Uh, we don't always uh, say says who with a sense of defiance. It's simply to understand uh, where is this coming from? I need to know is this important uh, for how I respond? And so from our young age, we always are working within the realm of authority. Uh, when something is said, we're, we're considering where does this come from? As we turn back in our Gospels, uh, uh, into the Gospel of Mark this morning, we're looking at a controversy over authority. Uh, there are people that are challenging, essentially, the authority of Jesus and the things that he is doing and the things that he has been saying. And this morning, we want to see how Jesus answers that or addresses their concerns and how ultimately Jesus is showing that he himself has all authority. And because Jesus has all authority, we are to take serious the things that he says and the things that he does. So it is, it is really all surrounding uh, a controversy over does Jesus have authority? And those who are challenging Jesus are trying to discredit him. But as Jesus is addressing their concerns, we're to come away understanding that Jesus does have authority. And that's a good thing. And so this morning we want to look at this, uh, these verses in three thoughts. We want to think about the challenge to Jesus' authority, the consideration uh, about Jesus' authority, and then finally the confirmation about Jesus' authority. So we have three seeds. But first is that challenge that comes uh, from uh, the religious authorities. You remember when we were reading the passage, it tells us uh, that the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to destroy Jesus because they feared him. Uh, they were upset about what Jesus had done. And now we're told about a plan that has been hatched. We're told in verse 27 uh, that when Jesus came again to Jerusalem as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Those three groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, you put them together, they actually formed a body. They formed a group called the Jewish Sanhedrin. That Sanhedrin party, that Sanhedrin group, was to the religious practices and the religious observance of the people of Israel. When you uh, wanted to know how it was that you were to carry out your faith, it was the Sanhedrin that was the, the authoritative governing body. And so now we're being told that representatives or people from this Sanhedrin are coming to Jesus, these scribes and elders and uh, chief priests. And when they come to him, they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? These things refers back to what Jesus had done in Jerusalem. You remember when he came into the temple that it tells us that he overturned the tables and he drove out uh, the money changers and those who were selling the pigeons. You remember that what was taking place there is, is that the, the temple worship was becoming corrupted because people were more interested in their own comfort than in the design and the will of God. That the people had moved the, the purchasing of animals into the very temple courts where the Gentiles were supposed to gather. That God's design was always to gather the nations in where God's presence was manifested. But what they were doing is they were actually obstructing that whole design by having it filled with animals. 
And not only that, but it was uh, an abusive thing because in the exchange of, uh, of buying uh, and selling currency, they were actually profiting off of these people who did come to worship. And so when Jesus drove out uh, the money changers, when he overturned the tables, he was pronouncing a judgment upon this practice. He was exposing them of their sin. But having done all that, preventing people from even carrying out their, their efforts to offer sacrifice, this was obviously being notified to the authorities. They obviously had heard about what Jesus had done. And that caused no little disturbance. That was enough for them to be concerned. But the, these things doesn't have to only refer to that one incident. Because Jesus' whole ministry was not wrapped up in that one isolated event. But we're seeing something of a pattern in Jesus. That he is doing things that trouble, that challenge the religious authorities. You remember that Jesus, early on in his ministry, he, he spoke as though he had the authority to forgive sin. And that upset many of the religious teachers. You remember how Jesus challenged the oral traditions. Again, challenging what the religious authorities were saying. This is the way you must live. This is how you must be right before God. And so Jesus' whole ministry was one of really challenging the powers that be and of correcting the abuses that had taken effect in the people of Israel. And so when they come to him and they said, under what authority are you doing these things? Sure, he's talking about the, the driving out of the money changers. But there's a, a growing animosity towards Jesus. Everything that Jesus is doing is making them upset. And so when they say, by what authority are you doing these things? They're challenging his whole ministry. And they're saying, by what authority are you doing them? And that second uh, statement there drives, teases out uh, really the nature of their complaint. <coughs> Who gave you this authority? There's the real issue. They're saying, what authority do you have to be doing these things? Who gave it to you? Which is implying... We certainly didn't. And we're the Sanhedrin. We're the highest authority in the land. We are the representatives over the people of Israel. We are the body of authority. So if we didn't give you authority, then why are you doing these things? Why should anyone listen to you? You're just a rebel. And so their questioning of Jesus is really meant to discredit Jesus' ministry. It's really to make him on the defensive here. And they come on the attack in this way, uh, challenging him uh, about uh, what he's doing. Now, maybe we're thinking about this uh, as a, a very quaint argument between these religious teachers and Jesus. But we all have to realize that the issue that is going on here is something that every one of us wrestles with. Because every one of us operates under a notion of authority. We all appeal to some source of authority to make sense of things, to be able to have order, to be able to know this is the way that we should do things, the oughtness of life. And so every one of us is looking to some grounds. We're appealing to some authority 
uh, in this world. The religious teachers are saying, we are the highest authority. And now they're challenging Jesus about authority. Where do you get your authority from? But every one of us here has to say, what do I appeal to for the way that I'm making sense of this world? What authority governs my life to help me make sense of right and wrong, that helps me understand how things ought to be? And so this whole issue, this topic of authority is very relevant for us, even though we're not there at the temple, even though it was so long ago. So it's a challenge to Jesus' authority, but it's a challenge that makes us all think, what am I appealing to? What am I using to make sense of the world that I live in? But there's not only this challenge that comes to Jesus, there's the answer that Jesus gives to that challenge where he considers, he is inviting them to consider where his authority uh, is found. And in verses uh, 29 and following, Jesus gives them something to consider. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus is saying, actually, his authority isn't really that hard to understand. You can just turn and consider John the Baptist and you'll have the answer right there. So he's opening up this whole topic uh, by making them think about John. Jesus isn't trying to divert from the topic. He's not trying to escape uh, from a question by asking a different question as a, a way of escape. Uh, sometimes people do that. They want to, I don't want to talk about this, and so I'll talk about something else. Jesus isn't doing that here. What Jesus is doing is he is he's actually helping them answer their question by giving them another question to consider. Sometimes questions do that. Sometimes when we ask a question, it can actually help us challenge some of our assumptions. Uh, but it can also do more than that. It can actually help us form connections that we didn't make before, that we were carrying on, not seeing how things fit together. But sometimes when someone says, have you considered this? it can actually bring that to the forefront and we start to see things do line up, things do fit together. And that's one of the ways that Jesus interacts with people, by asking them questions. And that it not only uncovers their assumptions, but it's also leading them. It's saying, have you considered this? And it helps them put things together rightly. So we shouldn't think that Jesus here is trying to evade what they're doing. Rather, Jesus is actually doing something good. He's helping them put things together. He's saying, if you really want to know, have you considered John? Because the way that you consider John is going to have a big effect on the way that you consider me. So Jesus uh, answers their question with a question of their own. Now, John the Baptist, uh, perhaps the most memorable thing about John uh, is the Baptist part. Uh, we know him as the baptizing one. He's the one who went out into the wilderness uh, calling people to repent of their sins and to be baptized in preparation uh, for what was to take place. And so we think of John's ministry as one of calling the people to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And that's right. But primarily, John was one who was preparing the way. 
John's fundamental ministry was announcing the one who was to come. John's ministry was that of a prophet, not simply that of a preacher. It wasn't simply that of a moral reformer. He wasn't just telling people, you've sinned and you need to turn back. His, his ministry wasn't just be baptized because you're, you're filthy, you're impure. John's ministry was primarily to point to the one who would come after him, whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. And you see that Jesus alludes to that there in verse 32, where it makes the point uh, that uh, the people considered John to be a prophet. He was not simply a reformer. He was not simply a preacher. He was a mouthpiece of God. He was a prophet. And he was preparing the way for the one that was to come. In fact, John the Baptist was the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was John's ministry. He was pointing people to the Messiah. He was preparing them to meet with their Savior. And so when Jesus says, have you considered John? Was his, was his baptism, was his ministry one that was from heaven, God-ordained? Or was it one from man? Was it of man's own initiative? Was this something that John was doing of his own imagination? Which was it? Tell me. Jesus is really pressing them to live in response to the things that have been taking place. But you notice how they respond uh, to that question. What is striking about their deliberation is, is that they aren't seeking to answer truthfully. They're not trying to answer sincerely about what they personally believe, but their answer is shaped by what they think is safe. They deliberate between themselves and they say, if we say it's from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? You see, their concern there is, where is this going? The consequences of it. They don't want to grant the idea that, Jesus, that John's ministry was God-ordained because they understand Jesus' argument. And you see here that uh, their, their concern is more about uh, the consequences John did uh, uh, preach that Jesus was the Lamb of God, and the authorities don't want to grant that John's ministry uh, was God-ordained because of that conclusion. But then they say, can we say it's from man? We can't say that either, because they conclude everyone believed that John was truly a prophet. Up until this point in Mark's Gospel, Mark hasn't really shed any light as to how, how the religious authorities viewed John. We know that John was martyred for his faith. We know that John was faithful in calling sin, sin, and in preparing for the one that was to come. But there's never been an, an evaluation as to how the religious authorities viewed John. But if you read in other Gospels, the assessment is very clear. They thought he had a demon. They did not believe in John, Jesus says elsewhere. And so here personally, the Sanhedrin does not grant that John was a prophet. If you asked them personally, they would have said, from man. 
not a prophet. But they're afraid to even say that. They don't even answer sincerely about their convictions. And their reasoning is because the people overwhelmingly disagree with them. Because the people en masse came out to John in the wilderness. Because the people came to be baptized. They believed that this man was sent from God. And that he was fulfilling the ministry uh, of Elijah. That he was the one that was to come. And so they're afraid to even express their, their notion, their thoughts, uh, because they know that it would, be, uh, it would be not the common view. It was uh, a minority thought. And so they didn't want to say it was of human origin uh, because they knew that the support of the people was for John. And Jesus knows this. He knows that people overwhelmingly believed in John as a prophet. That's why he can appeal to this as an argument. Uh, and it calls to question uh, their own, their own uh, thought processes. So they answered by saying, we don't know. They refused to answer Jesus' question because they want a safe answer. They don't even engage seeking the truth. Rather, they're more interested in guarding themselves. They're guarding their prejudice. They're guarding their preconceived conclusions. They're backed into a corner, and rather than speak out what they believe to be true and to follow that train of thought, they conclude it's better to be safe. This is what hardness of heart can begin to look like. <clears throat> hardness of heart manifests itself when a person is unwilling to sincerely answer questions. When a person does not genuinely want the truth anymore, but what they want is to get the conclusions they want. The Sanhedrin has already concluded what they think about Jesus, and they don't want to be challenged in their assessments. They don't want to deliberate. They don't want to wrestle and argue for the truth, to uncover what is really true. Instead, they simply want to maintain their present course of action. That is a, a, a very desperate situation to be in when we're not even open to dialogue, when we're not open to wrestling through matters, we're not open to reasoning and seeking the truth, but rather that we are forcefully seeking to protect uh, our own prejudice. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning. Maybe you have your own objections to Jesus. Maybe you have your doubts about Jesus. But you have to ask yourself, if you are sitting here as someone that hasn't come to faith in Christ, with your objections, are those objections really the issue that are preventing you from faith? Or are they just a screen, a buffer to not have to deal with Christ? If those objections were answered and addressed, would you believe? Or are you just going to continue to maintain those objections as a way of avoiding having to work through the truth? Are you open to working through and reasoning together and contemplating these things? Or do you close off when you're questioned yourself? It's one thing to raise questions. People can have questions. 
But you have to realize that your own position has to be scrutinized as well. It's not enough to simply say, I have questions about Jesus. But you have to say, I have to question my position without Jesus as well. Why am I in that position? The Sanhedrin here show an insincere reasoning for why they oppose Jesus. They don't want to acknowledge him. And they don't want to engage in his questioning. So these men uh, uh, came to Jesus challenging him about his authority. Who gave you this authority? Jesus challenges them back. Do you really want to know where my authority comes from? He asks them about John, and they don't want to engage. And so when Jesus asks that question, he's really uncovering their own attitudes. Rather than going back and forth like this, their, their refusal to engage shows something of their hardness of heart. And Jesus says, neither then will I answer your question. What a solemn thing for them to come and to challenge Jesus. And Jesus then refuses to grant their authority over him. Neither will I answer you. He leaves them in silence. If we don't want the truth, we won't find the truth. And it's only when we recognize that we are accountable before God, that we are to be living before God, that we can understand the truth as it is. So there's the challenge that comes to Jesus. There's the consideration that Jesus poses to them. But then finally, there is the the confirmation of Jesus's authority. This isn't left as an open-ended issue. Well, does Jesus have authority to be doing these things? The whole of Mark's gospel has already answered that. Jesus's miracles showed that he had authority from God to do these things. Jesus's baptism showed that he had authority from God to do these things. When Jesus was baptized, the father spoke audibly, this is my beloved son, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That he was equipped by the spirit to carry out this work because it was the power of God to bring salvation. Jesus' authority was manifested again and again. And it would be manifested even further when Jesus was crucified, buried, and then rose again. Because when he rose again, he rose in the spirit, by the power of the spirit, he rose as the son of God in power, it says in Romans. Having all authority as the glorified king. He ascended into heaven as the king who reigns over all things. Jesus could say, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Jesus has all authority. That has been proven through his miracles, through his baptism, through his resurrection, through his ascension. His authority is well established. But behind that, we might question, but is that a good thing? We all appeal to authority in this world. The good news is is that the one who has authority over all uses it for our good. That the one who has authority over all is the one who restores what is broken. That he's the one who said, your sins are forgiven you. He has the authority to do that. 
that he's the one who can make what's wrong right again. And that when we live under Christ's authority, we can be confident of how to move forward. So when Jesus says that we're to forgive, when Jesus says we need to repent, we don't simply say, says who? But rather we take those words as the words of the sovereign king, the holy one of Israel, and we say, these are good words, and I should trust them, that I should live in response of them, that I need to be corrected if I am to flourish, that I need to be merciful myself because my king is merciful, that I am to take his words as the bedrock of my life and to make sense of the world that I live in. Jesus has all authority. That becomes the very grounds for hope because he's able to make things right. And he does through his death and resurrection. He pays the penalty of sin, but he also gives us the promise of a new heavens and a new earth when all will be made right. And we can live confident in his power and authority. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he was challenged on his authority. They didn't want to acknowledge him and they were unwilling to answer his authority. But because Jesus is Lord over all, we can be confident uh, that he will set things right ourselves. Are we trusting in his authority or are we living in defiance of it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about this uh, altercation that took place uh, between the religious authorities and the Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, that it would uh, highlight to us uh, how easy it is to become defiant ourselves, acting as if we are the highest authority. And we pray, Lord, that we would see in Christ one who has authority over all things and that this is something good and something that we are to find our hope in. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would understand that Jesus uh, is the one who has not only the authority to forgive sins, but who by his authority calls us to come to him and that those who do so will find rest for their souls. So go before us, we pray, and help us uh, to take seriously all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has done. In his name we pray. Amen.